0: News, Views, Opinions, and Attitudes. Attitudes. There's actually uh,
1: intriguing talk. You know, they talk about the news. And you have to respect them for that. You're listening to Right On Radio. Hey, thank you for being here on Right On Radio. This is a really exciting part two, possibly more exciting than the first one believe me. So in the first one, obviously, we learned that uh, Tim Cohen's research indicates that Prince Charles or King Charles now is going to become the Antichrist. The amount of evidence that Tim Cohen has collected over nearly 40 years is pretty overwhelming, and we've only scratched the surface with it. Uh, In this particular episode, you're going to see how he uses what the Bible describes as calculate the number of the beast 600 plus 60 plus 6. And he made a pretty amazing discovery in using the biblical calculation for the number of the beast. You're going to find that in today's program also you're going to hear well uh, we went down a rabbit hole so to speak and we started talking about the rapture and tim offered something that i've never considered before and i was pretty firm in my research about when and just upon reviewing the timing of everything and if you've heard when I think it was mid-trib but a little bit past midway um, I actually think Tim and I agree on that after listening to him a little bit further now I have to I have a lot of research to do uh, based on some of the things he's said but he's presented an argument that I've never heard before and it has to do with the transfiguration Remember, Jesus appeared in the transfiguration. And why is that? And does it have something to do with the rapture? And Tim describes describes phases of the rapture. Really, really interesting. As in all things, I say, be the Berean. And by the way, I just need to note... uh, A lot of people, I'm going to have to do a program on this, unfortunately, but a lot of people who uh, support me on Podbean through the patron program, I get notices all the time. Uh, I've probably had about 40 people in the, you know, since January 1st, maybe more where their credit cards have expired. And actually my support has gone down. 35 40 percent uh, that's a really big hit folks um I do get an email every time and I get the person's email and I just I can't bring myself to task to say hey your credit card expired please keep supporting me um it just feels petty to me to do that so if you have supported me in the past and you may want to check, uh, also, if you do support me on Patreon, uh, it is important to note that I do use its uh, its billed as the speaker's company. That's because I use a corporation to help minimize the amount that I have to give to the to the government. So uh, that's it. But if you could please check your credit card, if you are a subscriber, as we say the. Uh, the support has gone down and it's harder for me to uh, to function, obviously. I have a house, a mortgage, just like many of you do. Um, lastly, I talk a lot about My Liberty Stand and it really is taking a big step forward. You really should give me 15 minutes of your time. Let me tell you about it. And in the course of that, I will also tell you about where's the beef. <laughs> where's the beef? But instead of going to mylibertystand.com, which I'm having some glitches with, please send me an email at gmail.com. I actually got to write that in here, uh, but it's rightonjeffgmail.com. .com and without further ado, I really think you're going to enjoy part two of this presentation that I called the antichrist named in the first one. And this one, I think it's going to have a different title, but you, it doesn't matter because you're already watching it silly Jeff. Anyways, this is, uh, going to be just under two hours, but I'll tell you it it's gripping. So God bless each one of you. And remember, trust no man, be the Berean, and compare everything to scriptures for yourself. Here comes part two with author Tim Cohen. Right on radio.
0: Right on radio. This right here concerning the Antichrist. It says, as if mortally wounded. So, yeah, maybe mortally wounded, but we don't really know for sure. What we do know is the reaction of the world. And the reaction of mankind will be to worship the devil and the antichrist. And that kind of you know dramatic reaction kind of does suggest a resurrection, mm-hmm. you know, or something that seems to be that. We don't know that it'll be that, but Whatever it is, it'll be close enough to that, as far as the world is concerned, that they'll be awing and ooing or something like that, right? All right. So when we talk about heads on this heraldic achievement, there are multiple heads, right? There's the 10 here. There's the red line of Scotland, which has a head. Obviously, the dragon has a head. The unicorn has a head. This lion leopard bear, beast has a head, and it's repeated here, the same beast. So there are, and of course, the overall heraldic achievement, the coat of arms itself, has a head, right? So there are multiple heads here. Uh, The major ones all explicitly represent Charles. The red dragon explicitly represents him because of this label around the neck. Same thing with the unicorn. Same thing with the lion, leopard, bear, beast. And then again, same thing with the overall heraldic achievement or coat of arms. So I think that rather than saying that it's the Antichrist himself who doesn't necessarily receive that fatal wound, you know, with that strange language of heads. I think what uh, John and the scripture here are really pointing out is that this beast has more than one head. And we can mm-hmm. see that literally, obviously, here on the heraldic achievement. And the placement of the label seems to suggest that that head is still going to be Charles himself. So, with that being said, let's go on to the chain for a moment and by the way you know when he's possessed by the devil the devil maybe he'll seem to do miracles at some point but nobody should be expecting that of Charles right now and later the only thing scripture explicitly says on that is that it'll be the second beast the one arising out of the land you know the false prophet you know which is probably the correct understanding of this second beast that this would be the false prophet that's the one who will be doing the signs you know in the sight of the first beast right He'll be granted to do signs or miracles, ostensibly. So, when we go now to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I want to talk about that chain before it gets too late. Scripture talks about a restrainer. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, what people who don't have any familiarity with heraldry Uh, are ignorant about. And what most people who do read about heraldry also do not know is that this chain right here around this sinister beast, this unicorn, is officially called a restrainer in heraldry. That's what they actually call it. And when it's not bound to the compartment at the base here, it's officially called loosed, L-O-O-S-E-D, loosed, or not restrained. When it is bound, the restrainer is restraining, and the beast to which it's attached is called restrained. That's all official heraldic jargon. And so when Paul, you know, even before heraldry existed, you know, Paul, heraldry like that, Paul was talking about a restrainer in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, under inspiration, right, of the Holy Spirit. -hmm. A lot of people have looked at this and said, well, that's the Holy Spirit restraining evil in the world by virtue of the presence of the church, which is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, right? That's what pre tribulationists claim. That's what some mid tribulationists claim. And then on that basis, they allege that uh, necessarily for the restraining to no longer occur, for the restraint to be removed, for it to cease the church must be removed from the world and that that's evidence to them of a rapture before the antichrist does his thing, you know, in the world for that three and a half year period, the great okay. tribulation.
1: So, so I fit into this category and, and by the way, and I have open, open mind, I don't claim to have all mm-hmm. the answers to anything, but the way I've looked at it and, and by the way, I plan for the end of the tribulation just in case, but uh, I think I've, from my researchers, that uh, 1260 days, and then he takes power, and then there's that short time when the mark of the beast is put in, and I think it's during that time that the uh, the moon goes red, the sun goes dark, and then we have the return of Christ. And that, and I did see this as the restrainer uh, being taken away as part of the church. So that has been my view.
0: And with respect, Jeff, it's the wrong view. I, I'm and open. So I can... Yeah, I actually lay out what the correct view is and why some of the things that you said, not all of them, some of them are incorrect in my teaching titled The Real Rapture, uh, which is available, actually, um, from Prophecyos right here. You can get it on CD or DVD. It's about three and a half years long, uh, three and a half hours long, I mean to say. And that teaching is based on a much more extensive and comprehensive book in the Messiah History and the Tribulation Period series, that fifth volume titled The Real Rapture you know, and other prophetic mysteries. So I address that, but more than that, let me point you and others to this. Um, And I can share this with you if you want to share it later, you know, when you post this online. Um, On my YouTube channel, under some of the interviews I have given and presentations I've shared, the ones that I personally have uploaded that deal with this topic of the antichrist or related things, I've pinned some comments right beneath, let me mute that uh, and stop it, right beneath the um, video. So if you go to the pinned comments, so not the show more part, but below that, the pinned comments at the top, I've given a few uh, paragraphs, it's not very long, which anybody with their Bible in hand can study through what I share just right here uh, it doesn't take very much and know that the rapture is post-tribulational from this right here. And I'm not really addressing the restrainer at all in this. So we'll come back to the restrainer, but I just want to share this with you. So you can go with your Bible in hand. Anybody else watching and listening to this, pull well, up I've these pretty comments. Well, I
1: challenge personally to look it up because I, I really thought I did a pretty extensive study on it, Tim. But... Yeah, well,
0: I'll show you. <laughs> uh, if If time permits... I'll go directly to your points on Revelation 6 and so forth and show you what you've missed on that before this interview is over briefly. Okay. We can talk about it more later if you like, but, it, but apart from that, I would recommend to you as well as the audience with your Bible in hand, don't read this without your Bible in hand, read through this and study each verse reference and each point made as you go. It's not very long. Anybody can do this in a period of a few minutes to half an hour with just what I share that, and those pinned comments are under this one, this one, and this one. So at least three of these have those pinned comments. Okay, okay so
1: for those of you who are just listening, and, I, and I've and i already directed my uh, my listening audience to really go watch this video so they can see the coat of arms, but I'm going to post those things for them as well. But what Great. Tim is pointing to is on his YouTube channel at Author Tim Cohen, it's Our Tribulation Devices uh, is the first one that he showed and it had those pinned comments. So... Just go into the comment sections underneath that video and you will see exactly what he's talking about.
0: Yep, the very top set of comments, which I've pinned above everyone else's, is where they'll find that. So, okay, coming back now to um, this and the restrainer. So, even if we were to accept the notion, you know, setting aside the heraldry and what's on Charles' heraldic achievement and setting aside this chain, you know, just ignoring it altogether, even if we were to pretend that wasn't there and to argue that the restrainer really is the Holy Spirit and only the Holy Spirit. And by the way, uh, when it talks about the restrainer here, the Greek text is translatable as not just his or he, you know, or him, but as it. In other words, the restrainer is both a person and a thing at the same time, according to this Greek text. That's what a lot of people have missed, you know, who don't look at the Greek. But setting aside the it part of that for a moment, if we were to argue that the restrainer is only a he and that the restrainer is the Holy Spirit, even if the restraint is removed here from the Antichrist so that he can have a global reign and do his wickedness throughout the world, that in no way mitigates the presence of the earth Uh, excuse me, the church on the earth and the Holy Spirit in us. For example, all kinds of Christians have been martyred down through the centuries, including in our day. People who are filled with the Holy Spirit, who are sitting there, for example, you know, in the last few years, you might take a a Muslim terrorist, for example, a member of ISIS on a beach, cutting off the head of a Christian right there on the beach on film. You know, the head of a born-again Christian. Who is filled with the Holy Spirit while it's being done? Yeah. Is the Holy Spirit restraining that gross evil? No. So if the Holy Spirit allows such evil to take place, like the Holocaust under Hitler, while the church is present on earth, including in Germany, there were Christians in Germany when that was done, like the millions murdered under Mao in China, like the tens of millions murdered under Stalin, you know, in Russia, mm. Soviet Russia, you know, and all the other examples to which we can point in history of martyrs, being, you know, of Christians being martyred, like those murdered in the arena, you know, eaten by lions before Nero, yeah. you know, etc. We can go down the line into innumerable examples where the Holy Spirit was present on earth and in Christians and great evil was done literally right there in the presence of the Holy Spirit.
1: Well, listen, I think of Stephen uh, being stoned. <laughs> There's no better example, really. Than the yeah, only, you're right. Being
0: given. Yeah, and speaking by the Holy Spirit while it's being done. So, yes, exactly right. So my point is, anyone who wants to argue that this represents the removal of the restraint of the Holy Spirit, okay. I I think it has a more literal other, uh, other meaning and representation as well. But that argument, and I'm not saying it doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is not restraining here. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying it has another meaning and interpretation that is every bit as valid. And, And what I'm also saying is that removal of the Holy Spirit's restraint does not equate to removal of the Holy Spirit from the earth at all. Nor does it therefore equate to the removal of the church from the earth. That's a fallacious and false on its face argument. So... That being said, I address this passage in 2 Thessalonians 2 in great detail in that volume coming in the Messiah History and the Tribulation Period series, but I also address it in that teaching titled The Real Rapture, and I'll point people to that because I want to come back to this thing as the restrainer here. I pointed out to you that this is an occult form of artwork, and I mentioned earlier in the interview that while I was still at the Academy, besides this official heraldic achievement in my hands, I also found the unofficial version, the major unofficial version, which is almost as official. It was the most prominent version apart from this, you know, at the time, and and actually still is because of my book, oddly enough. But I show it inside the book. And this is an occult form of artwork that's meant to be prophetic by the occultists who produced this. And by the way, they did not produce this under any direction from the British monarchy. There are international laws that pertain to heraldry, and this was produced by the College of Heraldry in London, which is the most powerful body of heralds in the world, under the auspices and direction of the Garter Herald King, who is the most powerful herald on the planet and is the head of that college. And this belt in the center of the coat of arms for Charles' is heraldic achievement is the garter of the Order of the Garter, which is the oldest and most prominent order of knighthood or chivalry in the world, existing since the 1300s, 1348, when it was founded. And the Garter Herald King of the College of Heraldry is a member of the Order of the Garter, which is why he's called the Garter Herald King. He's brought into it by virtue of being the head of that college. At any rate, uh, the College of Heraldry was responsible for the creation of this heraldic achievement. And they did it by taking some of the symbols of Elizabeth's Prince, uh, Queen Elizabeth II's heraldic achievement, her coat of arms, of Prince Philip's, Charles' father's heraldic achievement or coat of arms, combining them and then adding unique symbols to represent Charles himself, such as the Red Dragon, Satan, such as what's called the Badge of the Black Prince here, which is the founding Prince of Wales of the Order of the Garter, called the Black Prince because he dressed all in black as a feared military commander in the 14th century. He was the founding Prince of Wales, in fact, of the Order of the Garter, along with the- the, Black Prince. Yeah, he was called the Black Prince because he dressed all in black and was, you know, claimed to be a feared military commander throughout Europe at the time. But this is the badge of the Black Prince, and these are three ostrich feathers. Charles used a, a version of this which had six sets of lines, multicolored each for 666 before the before the World Economic Forum. So people will see this black prince badge with multicolored ostrich feathers, you know, representing sexual Satanism as three sets of six or 666. Also for the Vav, Vav, Vav in the Hebrew language, mm. like three spikes, the sixth yeah. letter in the Hebrew language, same shape as the letter Vav. But anyway, this is the badge of the Black Prince with the motto Icdn here. Charles actually wears this badge on the gold signet ring on the seal that he wears on his finger that he has worn since before he married Diana. You know, to this day, he still wears it. He still wears the badge of the Black Prince even though he's now King of England on his finger. And what does
1: Icdn mean?
0: Yeah, I'm coming to that. So I want to point out that this shield right here which is the shield of the Duchy of Cornwall, is the shield of the Black Prince. That's its derivation historically as well. So we've got the badge of the Black Prince here above Ick. We've got the shield of the Black Prince to the right of Ick, okay? In heraldry, this coat of arms is red from top to bottom and left to right, as we think of left-right, okay? Even though this is really the right side of the heraldic achievement, so far as the heralds are concerned. And this is the left side, okay? Because this beast is looking at us. We're not looking at it, it's staring at us, so far as the occultists are concerned, okay? But when you read it, you know, this is one of the oddities of heraldry, you read it from top to bottom and left to right, like you would read a book. It's like a symbolic book, if you will. And you know, they say a picture's worth a thousand words. Well, here you get way more than a thousand words, because I actually have to address all this. In the Antichristny cup of tea, and believe me, it takes way more than a thousand words to do it. So that being said, the way you read this is ick for I, dn for serve. So it's "ich dn. It's been argued whether this means ik, dn, or your man, depending on whether the language is German or Welsh. Okay? But Charles understands it to mean I serve. Ick for I, dn for serve. So the way that you actually read this, is I, the Black Prince, or I, the Black Prince, serve Satan. Wow. That's what it says.
1: Wow. I haven't seen you say that in the interviews I've watched. Wow. Yeah,
0: it's in in the book. And Black Prince here is also Prince of Darkness, or Black One. So, the early church, and you can find this in the pseudepigraphic pseudepigraphic writings of early Israel also, which are extra-biblical writings, they referred to the Antichrist as the black one, quote-unquote. You won't see that in the New Testament, but it is in early writings that are as old as and precede the New Testament, even where Jewish writings, where the Antichrist as the descendant of the tribe of Dan, and Charles is a descendant of the tribe of Dan, he's a Danite, Genealogically, of the tribe of Dan, so he is an Israelite. In fact, as are William and Harry, they're Danites. But uh, they referred to the Antichrist as the Black One, and in our more modern lingo, uh, more modern lingo, you know, we've heard it called. We've heard him called, you know, like in science fiction or fiction, uh, or satanic fiction, the Prince of Darkness, right? But he is formally called the Black Prince. So he is, you know, the black one, the prince of darkness, I, the prince of darkness, serve the devil. That's what it says. And I'll tell you a story, Jeff, and I have not, I've shared these in the book. Okay. One of these stories is in the first edition of the Antichrist, the cup of tea. The other story is more recent. So it's in the second edition. Okay. And I can show this to audiences and maybe I will someday, but what, you know, while I was, I think I was still at the academy. It was either I was still at the academy, and it was a weekend, or it was right after I got out of the academy. i forget now, I'd have to actually go and look at what I wrote in my book, the first edition, you know, to clarify this for myself. But I went to see the movie titled um, I don't know if it was The Omen or The Prince of Darkness. I think it was just called The Prince of Darkness that had come out. You know, while I was either right at the end, right before I left the academy or right after that, when I was already working on this book. I want to say probably right after like the very early 19 very early 1988. But when that movie Prince of Darkness came out, I went to uh, Buckingham Mall and it's no longer Buckingham Mall, but it was called Buckingham Mall at that time, Buckingham Square Mall, you know, named after Buckingham Palace to see that movie at the theater inside the mall. And this was in uh, Denver, Colorado, okay? And at that movie, the ticket that I received, which was printed at that time, and I still have the ticket, I kept it, so I still have it. I can still show it to people on the ticket. The ticket number was six, six, six. And on the ticket at itself
1: Buckingham theater
0: Theater. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's not the end of it. It had the name of the girl behind the counter who sold me the ticket on it. Her name was Diana. So in Buckingham Theater, I got a ticket to see a movie about the Prince of Darkness, the so-called Prince of Darkness, with the number 666 on it and the name Diana on it. Charles was married to Princess Diana at that time.
1: Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And and Tim, just a side comment, just a little bit of comedy here, if you don't mind. but. I often say, you know, I have a really thick skull, so God does things really obvious so I can get it. I think he's doing the same thing (laughs) with you.
0: (laughs) Okay, well, I'm going to come back to another story on that after I finish this description on the the restrainer, okay? There's something else that happened, another thing that I can show to an audience, you know, actually physically show. So, uh, I thought that was pretty stunning, right?
1: Absolutely.
0: uh, So I kept the ticket, obviously. but. That being said, the other version of this achievement shown inside the book, that prominent unofficial unofficial version, there are two individuals in scripture called the son of perdition, okay? So we're looking at one of them with uh, Charles, you know, the foretold antichrist in 2 Thessalonians chapter Mm two. He's actually called in this chapter son of perdition. And a lot of English translations will call him son of destruction right here. The word perdition is also translatable as destruction, but it's a unique word. And so the New King James and the Authorized King James both render it as perdition rather than destruction. Uh, And the only other place that this is used of a person in the New Testament where somebody's called son of perdition is Judas Iscariot. Mm-hmm. he also was called son of perdition and he was called that after the devil possessed him right before he went to betray christ for his crucifixion now christ was crucified now, he was betrayed and then crucified at the midpoint of the crucifixion week in other words on a wednesday is when he was crucified not on a friday or thursday uh, so the teaching of the crucifixion being a friday or a thursday is false
1: well likewise the, the teaching being sunday right
0: well, yes, the weekly Sabbath is still the same as it was biblically historically it's still Saturday, and it's really right. from sundown Friday until you know uh, yeah until um uh, the start of sundown sat what we call Saturday evening, you know, so what we call Friday evening is biblically once the sun starts to go down the first day of the week at evening, and what we in the West call. Um, Saturday evening is really the first day of the week at evening or Sunday evening, biblically, okay? Mm -hmm. So Christ actually rose between the weeks at the very end of the weekly Sabbath and literally at the very start, literally, you know, if you could slice the days, and only God can do that precisely, right? At the very start of the next week. So the first day of the week at evening. So he rose at the exact end of the weekly Sabbath, being crucified on a Wednesday, the fourth day of the week. So I address that in this series, Messiah History in the Tribulation Period. I prove it from Scripture. But that being said, Judas, on that fourth day, went to betray Christ. He was possessed by the devil right before he did it. Right, The devil entered him. Mm-hmm. And then he went to betray Christ for his crucifixion. In the case of the Antichrist, he's going to be possessed by the devil and go to betray Israel and the church rather than Christ, you know, so that Israel and the church are then martyred as lambs led to the slaughter at the midpoint of what I call the tribulation week or the start of the great tribulation. And that was the point, you know, a point of my presentation on my YouTube channel before a church, which I've shared publicly. The one that you were um, mentioning here, this one right here, this most recent video I uploaded from November of last year, which is titled, Our Tribulation Derives from Jesus' Crucifixion. And the rest of the title is, We Are Lambs in The Lamb. The point is, He was the lamb led to slaughter. We are lambs in Him, baptized into Him by the Holy Spirit, led to slaughter. Both from the midpoint of the week of history, Israel, and then the church, the fourth millennium till now. And then again, at the midpoint of the tribulation week when the great tribulation begins until Armageddon takes place. So we will be martyred, the church will, as lambs led to the slaughter. I say all that to point out that the Antichrist being the son of perdition, the son of destruction and possessed by the devil, uh, the prophecy that's cited of Judas earlier in the New Testament you know, where he has to be replaced as one of the apostles, right? Yeah. Because he was possessed and, you know, betrayed the Lord, etc. That prophecy, when they're quoting the Old Testament, they're quoting a prophecy from the Old Testament where it says, Judas, you know, has lifted his foot, if you will, against the Lord. If you're familiar with that prophecy, it's quoted in the New Testament. If you go to the passage in the Hebrew text of the Old Testament that's being quoted, The verse that's being translated as foot, pardon me, is actually hoof in the Hebrew. It can be translated as foot, and that's the way it's represented in the New Testament of Judas Iscariot. You know, he lifted his foot against the Lord when he became the son of perdition. You know, but the Antichrist becomes the son of perdition also, right? In that unofficial version of the achievement shown in the book here, there are some very specific changes and they primarily pertain to the unicorn with human eyes, the little corn with the eyes of a man. So the first change is that the red dragon touches the rim of this compartment, touches it right here, it's not touching it. So the devil reaches out and touches the compartment itself. The next change is that this hoof is actually lifted off of the compartment, completely detached. The third change is, you know, so the the son of perdition, in other words, Charles, is literally lifting his hoof against the Lord. Just like Judas did. Okay, that's Mm -hmm. my point. That's why why I went into that whole explanation. So I cite the passage and I go into the Hebrew uh, on that verse inside the book. But just like Judas lifted his heel against the Lord, Charles lifts his hoof against the Lord. So the hoof is detached in that other version of this heraldic achievement. The chain also is loosed, completely detached here. So the chain is no longer restraining the unicorn, Charles. The unicorn, Charles, is rearing back also and takes on a very satanic, deathly appearance, a very demonic appearance. So the unicorn here On the official heraldic achievement, the 1969 one that was unveiled at Charles' investiture is very graceful and majestic in appearance, right? Even though the color of it is that of rotting human flesh, as I earlier pointed out. So this is printed in CMYK colors, and that green hue that's actually on the unicorn does not show up in the colors used for printing book covers. CMYK colors, you know, that are ordinarily used for books. It does show up in the colors used to print certain magazines, for example, which are RGB, or like what you would show um, more frequently on the, on the internet where you get more of the color spectrum represented. So I showed the RGB uh, printing type version, if you will, uh, here on the unofficial, heraldic. excuse me, not unofficial, the original edition of the Antichrist and Cup of Tea. So if you were to see the printed cover of the first edition, it wouldn't look like this, it would look like the one that I was showing a moment ago because the printed books even for the first edition were CMYK, cyan, magenta, yellow, and key or black for the colors rather than red, green, blue for the color combination. And as a result, this greenish uh, tinge or hue is lost on the the, um, printing, on the printed cover of the book. But nonetheless, it's there on the coat of arms. So I just want to point that out because uh, that's the only part of this on the 1969 version that could be said to look deathly, right? Like death, that rotting human flesh kind of a look in terms of the coloration. But on that unofficial version, the chain is loosed. So the unicorn, which is Charles, Right? Got the label of the eldest son of the three mm-hmm. horns plucked up by the roots with the Lord, little horn in the eyes of a man coming up among these ten, right? Right here. And,
1: the, and then the hoof is raised.
0: The hoof is raised. The chain is loose. The devil is touching the rim. And the reason for that is the devil is transferred into the unicorn. Charles is possessed at that point, which is the reason his demeanor changes to one of actual death. And I show that in the book. As the you know, what's of amazing to me,
1: just looking at this, uh, Tim, is you know the, these heraldic societies—they're—they're they're not Christians, I'm assuming.
0: No. But boy, they know the Word of God to put this together. Well, they didn't do this on the Word of God. That's what I'm saying to you. This was all occult, satanically driven. Even the College of Heraldry, like I said, there are international laws that pertain to this. For example, this particular helm, the Sovereign Helm. Which Queen Elizabeth II, as queen, also had. She did not have the label of the eldest son on her heraldic achievement because she wasn't an eldest son, right? Right, a male heir apparent to the throne. She was never that, so she could never have this. But she did have this after she became queen. Charles had it from the start. The point I'm making is what they put on here is based on a whole bunch of rules that they didn't make up suddenly just because Charles was born, you know, in 1948. Those rules go back for centuries. And these things were developed over centuries by other people. And it was multiple heralds who participated in this, even though the Garter Herald King oversaw all of this, okay? The Red Dragon wasn't put on there just because Charles was Prince of Wales. It's because of his lineage. And they wanted to emphasize that with his investiture. So he was the 21st Prince of Wales in history, right? But of all of those Prince of Wales, including William, who's now the 22nd Prince of Wales, only a few of them were actually formally invested as Prince of Wales, and even fewer presented to the Welsh people as Prince of Wales. Okay? So, and none of them had the badge of the Black Prince on their achievement ever until Charles. Okay? So there are a lot of things here that are unique to Charles, but they weren't able, in other words, to sit down and just say, gee, let's look at Scripture and make it look like what's described in the Scriptures. And this is what I was saying to you when I said the devil is not so smart as a lot of people think in terms of his understanding of Scripture. I believe Satan literally doesn't understand Scripture as well as what I've described just in this interview alone in terms of Charles Heraldic achievement except for me from reading my book. Undoubtedly, he's looked at my writing and now he understands more than he did when this was created, okay? They didn't sit down and suddenly say, okay, let's put the restrainer on here and then let's do an unofficial version where it's loosed to represent Second Thessalonians 2. They didn't do that, okay? The devil, something spiritually was shown to them and they decided to do this other version. You know that represents not today But the great tribulation, in other words, that other version doesn't actually pertain yet. It's not yet fulfilled. It'll be fulfilled after the mortal wound in Charles' possession by the devil.
1: And and when you say great tribulation, because I kind of call the the second half just the wrath of God, which it's also in the Bible, it's called the great tribulation. But when you're saying great tribulation, are you saying the second half?
0: I am saying the second half, and part of what you will read under those notes that I highlighted, that pinned set of comments, deals with the identification biblically of what is God's wrath. And to call the second half or the latter half of Daniel's 70th period of seven uh, years, that last seven year Mm -hmm. period of Daniel 9, 24 to 27, To call the latter half of that the Great Tribulation is technically and biblically correct. To call the entire week the Tribulation week is not technically or biblically something you find in Scripture. It's what I call it. Simply to clarify to people that I'm talking about that 70th week of Daniel 9, 24 to 27. Okay, So the first half is not called Tribulation in Scripture. I call it the Tribulation week because it contains... The great tribulation throughout its latter half but when we get into the identification of god's wrath and i point this out in those comments to which i've pointed you and others in luke chapter 21 um, in the olivet discourse Christ describes great distress and great wrath upon this people, meaning the people of Israel. And he's talking about those who are specifically in Judea, geographically, when they see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, and they therefore know that it's desolation is near. Are are you following that so far? Yes, I am. So there's a very specific context to his subsequent statement that there will be great distress in the land, meaning the land of Israel or Judea specifically, and wrath upon this people. So those who remain in Judea specifically, when the time comes for this to be fulfilled, will experience wrath, okay? Now, Yeshua, Jesus did not say in this verse or anywhere else, whether this particular wrath, and this is the only Olivet Discourse that mentions this wrath, okay? He does talk about the great tribulation in Matthew and in Mark and also here in Luke. In relation to these events, he he describes these things as the great tribulation or the great birth pangs commencing with this, okay? So this wrath, in other words, this distress in the land, this great wrath upon those who are in Judea coincides with great tribulation they go together but he doesn't mention this wrath in the olivet discourses elsewhere only here in luke 21 does he do so and that's because those who are in judea will experience this wrath it does not define it he does not define it whether it's man's wrath the devil's wrath or his wrath as god in this passage he does not say We can discern, we can surmise from the rest of the Bible, everywhere else in the Bible, that talks about the great tribulation and what Israel is to experience, those specifically who remain in Judea, meaning unbelieving Israel. We can surmise that this is God's wrath, okay? But that it is also the devil's wrath and also mankind's wrath. How do we know that it is the devil's wrath and mankind's wrath? Here in Revelation chapter eleven, that woman who is to flee and to be provided for for a time, times and a half a time. In uh, in Revelation twelve, pardon me, I meant I meant to go to Revelation twelve. Um, so that woman who's going to be nourished for a time, times and a half a time, or throughout that great tribulation, that three and a half year period, who's given two wings of a great eagle. The reason that she is commanded to flee and must flee, is because the devil will be enraged with the woman. Satan will be enraged with a woman. He'll make war with her offspring and her uh, who have the commandments and keep the testimony of Yeshua, meaning believers like you and me. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we know that the devil's wrath is directed against the woman throughout the great tribulation that time, times and a half a time. Meaning the woman who flees, believing Israel and believing Gentiles, the church, if you will. Any believers who are present, in other words, in Judea, when the time comes for this wrath to commence, right before it starts, when they see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, they're supposed to be aware that the desolation is near and to get out of dodge, meaning to flee Judea, to not be present. in Judea. Go to the mountains, flee to the mountains, flee to the wilderness. Don't be there. Just like that woman who flees to the place that God has prepared for her, right? To not be there. So whoever remains behind, whoever stays in Jerusalem, whoever remains in Judea, which by the way, Jeff, is where most of modern Israel's population is, Mm
1: -hmm. who
0: are in the land. Most of the Israelite population, so not the so-called Palestinians, the Gentiles who are in Israel. Most of the Israelite population, the bulk of it, the vast majority of it is not in Samaria or Galilee, Galilee, pardon me, or the so-called West Bank, you know, or those areas, but they are in Judea. And believers, Jew and Gentile alike, are to get out of Judea when these things transpire. Now, in Matthew and Mark, in addition to Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, meaning the whole city of Jerusalem, in addition to that taking place, Matthew and Mark talk about the desolation that causes abomination or the abomination of desolation standing where it's not supposed to be as being the triggering event, the triggering thing that when believers see that, they're supposed to flee from Judea to the mountains and the wilderness, right? So the abomination of desolation, Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, both of those things, when believers see either or both of those, they are to get out of Judea. The justification for the commandment to flee is right here from Yeshua, which is because there's going to be great wrath upon those who remain behind from the great tribulation, right? Following that so far?
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Okay. So here's where you've gone wrong. And here's where everyone else has gone wrong who call the great tribulation God's wrath. The wrath is geographically restricted only to those who are in Judea. It does not pertain to the rest of the world geographically which is the reason believers are to get out of Judea. Those who are obedient to the Lord will not be present for that wrath. So the way that the church, the believers who are commanded to flee here are not appointed to God's wrath. And as I said, this is the devil's wrath. It is also mankind's wrath, but it's also God's wrath. It's all three against those who remain behind in Judea. But what about the bowls of
1: wrath? Yep, That's I'm like...
0: a, I will come to that. I'm not. okay. Okay. I'm going to point those out very clearly to you in a moment as well when those happen. But here, just here, when we're talking about the Great Tribulation, the wrath is geographically restricted to those who are in Judea. And the Great Tribulation lasts throughout that latter three and a half years preceding Armageddon. Okay? Right up to the point where the seventh trumpet of the Book of Revelation starts to sound, that's when the Great Tribulation ends. The 1260 days end at that point. So I will come back to that. Now let's go to the bowls of wrath when they happen and where they happen, okay? So this wrath, which pertains to the Great Tribulation and those who are in Judea, is geographically restricted only to where most of modern Israel's population is in the land of Israel for the modern nation state of Israel, okay? The only two individuals who as believers are permitted to be present in Judea and in this area and around Jerusalem at this time are the two witnesses. Yeah. And they will be killed when the time comes on a street just outside Jerusalem where Yeshua was crucified. Okay. According to Revelation chapter 11. So setting them aside, the rest of the church is not supposed to be there at all in Judea. Now let's talk about the bulls of wrath. So in Revelation chapter 9, which is the trumpets. The trumpets are explicitly called plagues. Do you see this? Yes. The trumpets are not implicitly, but explicitly identified as plagues. The seven trumpets begin to sound according to Revelation chapter seven and eight. Excuse me, let me just go back to Revelation uh, eight. So the seventh seal after it's opened, there's silence in heaven for about half an hour. It's after this seal is opened, that the seven trumpets begin to sound in sequence, okay? I think that's pretty unambiguous.
1: So there is a different interpretation of that, Tim. I know,
0: and I'm going to come to that. This
1: was just sent to me.
0: It's incorrect.
1: (laughs) No, I know it's incorrect. It's a joke, actually. Um, Someone said women do not go to heaven because it says there's silence for about a half an hour.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. (laughs) Thank you. That's not what I thought you were going to say, but all right. (laughs) But you know, you know, those are getting pumped full of hormones, the uh, sexual Satanists who call themselves so-called transgenders. I'm sure they would argue the point. So of course we know they don't go to heaven, but at any rate, not, not if they're not repentant, they don't. They do not go to heaven. Okay. So that being said, the bowls of rat, uh, excuse me, the trumpets, which are outpoured after the seventh trumpet, boy. I'm tripping all over my tongue now. You made me laugh too much. All right. Let me get my <laughs> tongue in order here. So the, the seven trumpets are outpoured. Now, see, I'm still doing it. <laughs> all right. So I need silence for half an hour and then my tongue can work again. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, you're making me crack up, Jeff. All right. So the seven trumpets sound in sequence after the seventh seal is opened. There, I got the words out. And The trumpets are explicitly identified as uh, plagues in this chapter, uh, Revelation chapter 9, the next chapter. And yeah, let me go back to Revelation 9. I'm going to have to key it in next time. So we have seven seals. After the seventh seal is opened, the seven trumpets begin to sound in sequence. Now here's the problem with where you are trying to put the bowls of wrath. In Revelation 15, the very first verse, the bowls of wrath are explicitly called the seven last plagues, the seven final plagues. The use of the word final or last here in conjunction with the bowls of wrath necessarily requires that they come after the seventh trumpet starts to sound. And that by definition puts them either at the very end of the tribulation week or right after the tribulation week itself finishes. Because they have to come after the seventh trumpet starts to sound since the trumpets themselves ah. are plagues.
1: Oh my goodness. I just, yeah, I just got it. I, I understand what you're saying here.
0: Alright, so my next point is the bowls of wrath are global wrath and they are God's fury. They are not geographically restricted, but are poured out over the whole world. So the problem that has to be answered is, how can the church be here and not be harmed by that wrath when it's global? We can see how the church can be here to this point throughout the great tribulation and not be touched by God's wrath by simply being obedient and getting out of Judea, right? Mm -hmm. Since that wrath is geographically restricted, per Yeshua himself, per Jesus himself, the wrath of the great tribulation, which involves those birth pangs, that's why it's called the great tribulation, is geographically restricted to those who are in Judea. Okay. But when you get here to the bowls of wrath, it's no longer restricted geographically.
1: No, and this gets nasty.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And it's also not the birth pangs anymore. This is a whole new level of wrath right here, of God's wrath, okay?
1: Yeah, hundred pound boulders, <laughs> well,
0: that's one Yeah, that's one example, so, you know, 70 talents, right? Um, yeah, so roughly a hundred pounds, but the point is um, there are a lot of bad things that happen under the bowls of wrath that are not geographically restricted. How is the church protected from those? Well, here's the answer. Revelation chapter 10, verses five to seven. This angel or messenger, and I'm gonna say this, this is not a created angel, this is the angel of the Lord who took on a human body. This is Jesus, Yeshua himself, after he took on a human body. So all the angels of the Bible are created beings with one exception. And that is the angel of yod Vavhe, the angel of the Lord, who is, who is the means by which, the mechanism by which yod appeared to and spoke with and interacted physically with certain Old Testament saints. So, for example, when he appeared to Abraham and he ate with him, when he wrestled with Jacob, the angel of the Lord, who wrestled with him all night. These were theophanies, you know, where this angel was called yod not a created being, but God manifesting as an angel to directly interact. Okay? That angel took on a human body, and that's who he is here and this mighty messenger or mighty angel if you will yeshua himself who's not a created being he's god incarnate has all the attributes of deity in the first five verses and also in the next two he's the one who blows the seventh trumpet and this trumpet sounds for a period of days there are no other trumpets in the bible that do it says in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel it's the longest sounding trumpet in scripture. It's the tekiah the great blast or the great shofar of the day of trumpets. This is it right here. It's also the actual last trumpet anywhere in the Bible. It happens to be the last trumpet to which Paul referred, and it's easy to prove that. And that is something that pre-tribulationists deny. They lie about it. They literally lie about it. And I won't mince words on that. They lie about it. But their lie has been something they've been able to get away with because there's a phrase that's missing from the English translation here. Do you know what that phrase is, Jeff? I don't know. Okay. There's a phrase in the Greek text that's present in literally every Greek manuscript of the book of Revelation, but is missing from every English translation but one that I know about, every prominent English translation. And the only English translation I know of, which includes it, happens to be the Roman Catholic translation. Strange, huh? Isn't that weird? Go figure. Yeah. So the phrase is preached the gospel. You don't see it here, do you? No. What you do see here is declared, right? I've highlighted he declared it. declared to his servants the prophets. As he declared to his servants the prophets. The underlying Greek text actually says, as he preached the gospel to his bond servants, the prophets. In other words, so, so preach the gospel, the words, the gospel, the good news are missing right here where I've highlighted it, but they're there in the Greek text in an interlinear Bible or just the Greek text, you'll find them. So what it really says is, as he preached the gospel to his bond servants, the prophets and when it says bond servants it's talking about new testament prophets here okay so here's where we run into an issue and where pre would not have been able to get away with what they've done if that phrase were here if everyone were reading this and saw that this particular trumpet which sounds for a period of days was preached beforehand by the lord to his bondservants, the prophets, in the gospel, right? Then we'd be going to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and saying, where is it?
1: Wouldn't we? Absolutely.
0: Okay. Well, it's there, it's in the Olivet Discourses. It's the trumpet that attends Yeshua's return. He'll come with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet, or the blast of the trumpet, right? and the dead in Christ will be, right, will be raised first. Well, it's mentioned in the Olivet Discourses, all of them, you know, where Christ spoke. It's also mentioned by the Apostle Paul, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who are asleep, right? There's a sequence. Yes. First a translation of those who are alive, you know who survived to the point where the trumpet starts to sound who haven't died then a resurrection immediately you know at the same time a resurrection of those who died so people are translated or the resurrected depending on if they've um lived or died to that point and then there are those who come to those who are who are awaiting them on the earth you know with the lord right so they come to the to the earth with the lord so it continues, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with a voice of the archangel, and he's almost quoting Yeshua here from the Olivet Discourses, and with the trumpet of God, right? The trumpet. Well, pre tribulationists say, well, that's some nebulous trumpet. That's not the seventh trumpet of Revelation. It's not some other trumpet, you know, mentioned in the Bible, in the New Testament, or anywhere else. It's just a trumpet. It says you
1: know, the it's just the this trumpet, trumpet of God.
0: It's just the trumpet of God, whatever. It's the trumpet of God, right? So in other words, they divorce it from the Olivet Discourses and they divorce it from Revelation 10. And they get away with it because that phrase, the gospel is missing from Revelation 10 in most translations in English, okay? All right, so what does it say here? Uh, First of all, we who are alive and remain, there's a period of remaining, right? Have you ever heard a pre-tribulationist or for that matter a mid-tribulationist or any other post-tribulationist talk about that phrase and remain when teaching on this? Yeah, I think I have. What do you think it means? What have you heard it means?
1: So when the judgments have started and the tribulation there's some who remain right? you you, well, haven't no. been, you haven't no. been taken out by it, the plagues. You haven't been taken out by the other things. That's the way I would read it.
0: Not taken out by the plagues? Okay. That, that's a valid argument. <laughs> yes. But the point is, they're alive at the end of the tribulation week, at the end of the great tribulation Here, This is after the resurrection translation has happened. There's a period of remaining after the resurrection and translation have occurred, before the catching up to meet the Lord in the air. That's the point I'm making. The sequence here is, there's a period in which the resurrected or translated saints, some of them are remaining on the earth, for example, like the two witnesses, right? Yeah. Before they're caught to meet the Lord in the air, caught up to meet the Lord in the air, before they ascend up to meet the Lord in the air. That's exactly what happens with the two witnesses, so I'll come to them in a moment. But but the point is, this period of remaining it's because there's something that happens between the resurrection and translation and then the rapture itself. There's something that happens between, in which there are saints who have been resurrected or translated. Trans-
1: oh, you just froze there for a second, Tim. Uh, hopefully it didn't freeze on the recording.
0: Where did I freeze when I was talking?
1: Um, just on the, on the translation was your last word.
0: Okay. So there's a point between the resurrection slash translation and then the catching up or the rapture in which there are saints standing on their feet, you know, just waiting for the rapture to happen where they're remaining on the earth. In other words, on earth's surface. Okay. And that is what Paul is here indicating. And you'll never hear a pre-tribulationist talk about it like that or a mid-tribulationist or for that matter, I'm not aware of another pre-tribulation or post-tribulationist, pardon me, who's ever talked about that. But it's right here in the scripture. So the point is, when we go to 1 Corinthians 15, another passage that Paul talked about this trumpet, uh, pardon me, 1 Corinthians 15, down here starting in verse 50. Um, and actually we'll start with verse 51. Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So in other words, we'll not all sleep and be resurrected, but we'll all be changed, either resurrected or translated, right? Mm -hmm. In a moment, in a twinkling of the eye, at the last trumpet. So whatever is the last trumpet, right? Whatever that is, that's when it happens. Now, because Paul used the word last here, That implies there's a sequence. And if you divorce this trumpet from the seven trumpets in the book of Revelation, show me the sequence in the Bible. You cannot. The closest you can come to is to try to, you know, make some nebulous analogy to maybe the day of trumpets, which a lot of people call the Feast of Trumpets, and to try to say that this is the great blast or the tekiah Hagadol, the great shofar of that day, that feast, right? But even there, there isn't biblically a set sequence necessarily that that people follow or that's delineated clearly in scripture. There are a bunch of short blasts and then there's this really long one that is blown at the end till the celebrant or the so-called rabbi or whatever he calls himself, blows until he no longer has breath to blow it, you know, over the congregation for as long as he's physically able to do it, okay? To mimic this last trumpet. But in scripture itself, you can't find a sequence unless you are pointing to the seven trumpets of the apocalypse, but it gets much more objective than that. So Paul says, behold, I show you a mystery, right? It's when these things happen that the mystery is completed, right?
1: Yeah, according to the
0: mystery. Yeah, the mystery gets completed,
1: we're going to know everything.
0: Well, but the mystery is finished yeah. when that trumpet starts to sound. Paul actually says that between 1 Corinthians 15, here starting at verse 51, and then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 15. Between those passages, the mystery is completed when that last trumpet that he's talking about here uh, begins to sound, right? So when we go then, to Revelation chapter 10 again, and talking about specifically the seventh trumpet of that chapter, sorry. It's introduced in an interesting way. And it tells us that in the days of the sounding of the seventh messenger, the mighty messenger here, which is Yeshua himself, the resurrected Christ, when he is about to sound, and it actually says about to sound the trumpet, the mystery of God would be finished, completed as he preached the gospel to his bondservants, the prophets. In other words, the mystery Paul's talking about there in First Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 gets completed right here when this seventh trumpet starts to sound. And not while it's sounding or throughout the period that it's sounding, right? but when he is about to sound, so the moment, in other words, the instant that that trumpet starts to sound, even though it's the longest sounding trumpet in scripture and sounds for days, the instant it begins to sound, almost as if it were right before it started to sound, the instant it starts to sound, the mystery is completed. Okay? So all that is to say, objectively, the seventh trumpet in Revelation 10 is the last trumpet to which Paul was referring. It is the last trumpet to which Yeshua spoke in the Gospels themselves. And pre-tribulationists would know it if they had an honest translation that they were reading of this verse, where it says, preach the gospel to his bondservants, the prophets.
1: Tim, I get excited when I see the word of God in a new way. I really, really do. (laughs) I'm going to spend hours on this now. Yeah. I, I really will. I just—that's my nature. But I—I I just, I just really get excited.
0: Okay, and, and so uh... now back to the bowls of wrath. Right. Here's my point: the moment that trumpet starts to sound, which precedes the bowls of wrath, right? So it sounds for a period of days, and the bowls of wrath are outpoured after the seventh trumpet starts to sound, being the last plagues, the seven last plagues. Mm-hmm. The moment the trumpet itself starts to sound. The saints get their resurrected or translated bodies. So let me ask you this. Can those bodies be killed? No. Can they die? No. Will they ever grow sick or be injured? No. Can anything bad ever happen to them?
1: Unless the Lord decides to do it, no.
0: Right. For as long as the universe itself exists, no.
1: Well, you know what? So I have a question on that because the thou- there's the thousand years, but we don't have a lot of picture beyond the thousand years, right? So Well, we
0: do. There's more than you realize. I addressed it in my Solar Apocalypse series, so I'll tell you about that in a moment. There's some very, very interesting things that happen at the end of the thousand years besides the Great White Throne Judgment that a lot of people don't really pay attention you know, to what those are. But I believe it will answer the question you're about to ask. So I'll come back to that. Um, But the point I want to make here is, when we have our eternal bodies, they're immune from God's wrath by definition. Of course. Okay. So even if we're standing on earth and we see people being struck by God's wrath, literally all around us, it will not touch us. In other words, we're supernaturally protected from God's wrath at that point and not appointed to it. So initially, at the start of the Great Tribulation, the saints are protected from God's wrath by obedience, by getting out of Judea. Later, they're protected supernaturally by virtue of having their eternal bodies.
1: Well, you know, I I can't disagree with what you said there, but... I, I'm, I'm starting to tell people you might want to get out of big cities. <laughs>
0: you know? Yeah, well, let me <laughs> point out one other thing, too. Uh, Revelation 11. The, the Great Tribulation and the Tribulation week conclude with the start of the sounding of that trumpet. This is another thing that I haven't said. So the resurrection and translation take place the instant that trumpet begins to sound. And then the bowls of wrath are outpoured in sequence. And then later the rapture of the saints happen. okay? So this, the rapture is actually in stages. It's not at the same time for all of the resurrected or translated saints. That's another thing that others have missed. So in Revelation chapter 10, um, 11, pardon me, starting here with, um, let's say, verse 10, okay? So the two witnesses have been killed at that point And then three and a half days later, they stand on their feet. They're resurrected, right?
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And they ascend up to a cloud that says, you know, to a voice in a cloud that says, come up here. Okay? They ascend in a cloud. The world sees that. Those who killed them will see it. You know, those who've been rejoicing over them. Okay? Well, that is a rapture. When they're caught up in a cloud to meet a voice in the air that says, come up here, right? Right? Now, starting at verse 15, the typical English translation here is the word then. Right? But the Greek word is kai. And I'm not pronouncing that correctly, I'm sure. But uh, when you look at it in Greek, it's spelled in a way that sort of resembles k-a-i. And the word is translatable as and. Most literally, it's translated as and. And when you see it as then, it's only because of context. So when they did this translation based on the context, they thought it should be translated as then, instead of and. They got it wrong. The correct translation is and. All right. In other words, the seventh trumpet actually starts to sound right as the two witnesses stand on their feet. Not later, but right as they stand on their two feet. So in other words, in the same hour, that they stand on their feet, that trumpet has begun to sound, but that's not all. When you read this, it says, you know, in the same hour that that trumpet starts to sound, the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of Christ, right? Mm -hmm. And it goes on here. Yeah, if I look for the word hour here, you know, in the same hour, you know, that they stand on their feet, Right? There's a great earthquake and so forth, and then these other things happen. But chief among those other things is that the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of Christ, right? But Armageddon hasn't been fought yet. And that's a key point to get here. This is before Armageddon. The instant that trumpet starts to sound and the resurrection and translation takes place, the world belongs to the Lord, even though the devil still has his kingdom all over it. And the world, in other words, he's taken it back. And now the world is going to engage in direct warfare against the devil and his angels at that point. And that direct warfare begins with the bowls of wrath, which are global, which precede Armageddon. So, and that's what you see here also. The kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of the Lord, Right. But then it goes on to say that he's going to destroy those who are destroying the earth. That's what comes next.
1: Do we have a and, bit of a fight in that? Because we're in our new bodies at this point in time. We're coming with them.
0: No. So if we go to Isaiah 60, and I think that's the right chapter. If not, I'll find it. Um, See, actually, I do. I get it wrong. I think it's Isaiah 66. Let me just. Uh, if if not, I'll have to search for it. Um, okay, maybe it's 61. Forgive me. I after a while, I don't remember which verse. Okay. I'm gonna to have to search for it here for a moment, if you'll bear with me. Isaiah 63, well, it was 63. in between. <laughs> there you go. I guess if I kept going, I'd have found it. Okay, so that we know that Armageddon is the winepress of the Lord's wrath, right? Right. He tells us here that he's trodden it alone by himself. So what that means is we observe the destruction of the wicked. We observe the wrath poured out on the wicked around us. And then subsequently at Armageddon, though we're present with the Lord, we're witnesses to what he does. We don't ourselves slay the wicked. He does that himself with the sword that proceeds out of his mouth. That's right. Okay, in Revelation 19. So he trods the winepress alone. And as I mentioned, the rapture is in multiple stages, right? I didn't delineate for you or the audience what those stages are. I simply pointed out that in the same hour that that trumpet starts to sound between Revelation chapter 11, verse 10 and 15, in the same hour that it starts to sound, the world's kingdoms suddenly belong to the Lord, and then... After that, he's going to uh, destroy those who destroy the earth. He's going to engage in direct warfare with the enemy, right? That's all I've said so far. So the sequence of the rapture is first the two witnesses, because in the same hour that trumpet begins to sound, and it sounds for a period of days, they're raptured. But all of the saints, not just the two witnesses, all of the saints who are going to be resurrected or translated, that happens the moment the trumpet begins to sound, okay? Mm -hmm. So the resurrection translation, same time, for all of the tribulation saints. The rapture is not at the same time. So there's a period of remaining on the earth for tribulation saints. The two witnesses, less than an hour. They're caught up to meet the Lord in the air, right? And then he comes with other saints who have been resurrected or translated, who are in their new bodies, right? And the sequence for the rest of the church is this. Next is the 144,000, they appear on Mount Zion with the lamb, singing the song of Moses, the song of the lamb, a new song, which only they can learn, right? To be there on Mount Zion with him, they must have been gathered, right? In some fashion to show up there on Mount Zion to do those things. It's implied that they've been gathered, right?
1: Yeah, uh, so I've got a you know a whole understanding on this that I'm willing to be wrong on as well. So I'll just let you Okay, continue. okay.
0: Yeah, it's implied that they've been gathered. So they are the second stage of the rapture. Even though they've been protected, you know, with the seal of God in their foreheads before this from different activities of the enemy. Nonetheless, they are gathered to appear at Mount Zion to do these things, sing these songs, and so forth, and to be there with Yeshua as the Lamb before two harvests take place at the end of that chapter, at the end of the same chapter, Revelation fourteen. So, after they appear here on Mount Zion, and after the hundred, and, uh, excuse me, after the two witnesses have been raptured, you know, and then these two, these one hundred and forty-four thousand appear here on Mount Zion. Following all of that. There are two harvests at the end of Revelation chapter 14. The first harvest is the rapture of all of the rest of the church. It's the third stage of the rapture, in other words. The second harvest is actually the winepress of the Lord's wrath. In other words, it's Revelation chapter 19. So by the time Revelation chapter 19 takes place, and the Lord is trampling the winepress by himself, and we're witnessing it as observers. We will all be present with him, having been raptured already. All of us. The whole tribulation church will be with him at that point, as witnesses. Now, that being said, um, there is something else that is to be pointed out here. There are three angels that make proclamations, right? Uh, we know that the gospel is going to be preached to all the nations before the very end comes, right? Yes. Okay. And a lot of people think that the church will do that. For example, Roman Catholics think that that's the mission of the church—that the church will do that. It's and we great know commission. in the yeah, I was about to say, we know in the Great Commission that we're supposed to preach the gospel to all mankind. Christians are. That's our commission, right? mm Hmm. The church is going to fail in that mission. It will not succeed with the last generation preceding Christ's return. So the Lord will send an angel to do it himself. So there are three proclamations from angels here between the 144,000 when they sing that new song on Mount Zion with the Lamb, and then the rapture of the rest of the church. In other words, while the rest of the church is still present around the world, Awaiting the rapture, but already in their eternal bodies and with the bowls of wrath already being outpoured. Okay. In between those things, before the general rapture of the rest of the church, in other words, the first of three proclamations that take place is that an angel is going to preach the gospel to all mankind. In other words, the Lord is going to send an angel in the midst of heaven, to preach the everlasting gospel to all those that dwell on the earth every, every nation tribe tongue and people in other words we had every nation tribe tongue and people following after the beast at the start of the great tribulation right mm-hmm. now instead since the world is become the lord's kingdom and he's going to war against the enemy's kingdom which is still global by the way at this point now instead you know, with all those unbelievers, you know, who have been experiencing God's wrath, around the believers who are in their eternal bodies, scattered all over the world, are hearing the gospel from the heavens above, from an angel,
1: preached to them. Fulfilled.
0: Yeah. So this is how it happens, and then after this, the wine press of the Lord's wrath happens. So then the general rapture takes place, then the wine press of His wrath takes place. So even before Armageddon is waged, the rest of mankind that hasn't believed will have an opportunity to to believe, a a further opportunity to to repent, and to believe.
1: Loving God.
0: Yes, incredible grace. So we're coming up
1: on three hours here. I'm going to have to split this up into a couple different episodes. I think.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, Sorry. no, no, don't be. Uh, my goodness, You're, you've been gracious with me. I love this. <laughs> you know, this is, we're ta- God in politics is what I love talking. We're doing both here, believe okay. it or not. Um, so the two witnesses, most people say, or most people think it's going to be Moses and Elijah.
0: Do you agree with that? Yes. Okay. Except, Except for one thing. I'll say two things. And this is in my books, by the way. It's in, for example, the Messiah History and the Tribulation Period series. <coughs> One moment. <coughs> uh. <coughs> <coughs> Never swallow coffee the wrong way. Sorry. <coughs> okay. In some of my comments online when people have asked that question i point out the same thing which is that elijah is explicitly one of the two witnesses based on the prophecy and uh, i want to say it's either malachi or micah and um i think it's
1: i think it's micah
0: micah four or three which one is it here I don't know it's not maybe it doesn't like my acronym here yeah yeah there you go thank you um, <clears throat> let's go to four. there we go uh, it could be Malachi 4 yeah it must be Malachi yeah okay it was Malachi I mix those up so the Lord is going to send his messenger to prepare his way before him per Malachi 3 yeah and that messenger is not here identified as Elijah but he is identified as Elijah in the Old Testament. And let me just find here. Send Elijah. Malachi 4 5. So after being all thumbs with my attempting to remember <laughs> where this is, Malachi 4 5. All right. I'll remember it next time Elijah. for a while. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah, after dealing with other areas of scriptures for so long, I have to actually look some things up. But <clears throat> So Elijah will be one of the two witnesses per this, being sent before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And many people misunderstand the day of the Lord to be the tribulation week or the great tribulation, right? A lot of people will talk about the great tribulation as being the day of the Lord or the day of his wrath or that kind of thing. Which no, it is it's not.
1: It's the day of his return.
0: <clears throat> yeah, it's the day of his return. But they, all, some people will say that. Others will actually say uh, that when it says, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, it's talking about before the great tribulation. And they will, in that way, construe this to be talking about the day of the Lord being the great tribulation, that kind of thing. Or the tribulation week itself, if they're pre-trib, right? And that's actually taught in pre-tribulational writings. So. That's not correct. The day of the Lord is actually the Sabbath millennium. It's the millennial kingdom itself. It's the Sabbath day or the seventh day of the week of history. That's what it really is. And it's called variously the day of Christ, the day of Jesus Christ, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord Jesus, the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. You find it called all of those things between the Old and the New Testaments. They're all the same day. They're all the millennial kingdom. And so before the millennial kingdom begins, the Lord will send Elijah the prophet. Now, people look at the Mount of Transfiguration in the Gospel of John. I think it's John 9. <clears throat> John 9 or 10, let's see here. Maybe it's 10. Well, wherever it is in John here, let's see here. Trans. Figured. Oh, maybe I'm confusing John with Mark. I must be. Pardon me. Okay. At any rate, at the Mount of Transfiguration, Christ appeared with Moses and Elijah, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And His glory shone through His flesh, as if uh, resurrected or at His return, right? The angel of the lord his glory shining through his flesh even before his resurrection in a vision so on this basis i think a very strong argument is made that the second witness will be moses rather than somebody else that said there are two people in history who didn't die biblically moses was not one of them who were taken directly to be with the lord one pre-flood Enoch, yeah, one pre-flood was Enoch. Elisha Elisha died before he was taken by the Lord. Eli, um, yeah, Elisha died. Elijah did not. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I meant to yeah. say
1: Elijah.
0: Yeah, Yeah, no problem. So Elijah and Enoch, one uh, post-flood, the other pre-flood. So on that basis, people have argued for Enoch to be one of the two witnesses because he was pre-flood and because he didn't die. In the because there the was that
1: over Moses' body as well, right?
0: Correct. But we do know that he died and we do know that the Lord buried him because Scripture tells us that. So Moses was buried and he did die. But the location of his body was not known because the Lord buried him. And so you have to either argue that the Lord is resurrecting or has resurrected Moses to bring him back in a mortal body to die again, you know, as one of the two witnesses, and then be resurrected in an eternal body rather than in a mortal body that can die, right? You have to either make that argument for Moses to be one of the two witnesses, or you have to argue that it's Enoch, right? Because he never died. Or you have to then, as the third option, argue that it's gonna be someone alive in this generation whom the Lord has not disclosed who may come in the spirit of Moses or Enoch in the same sense that John the baptizer came in the spirit of Elijah, you know, when Christ came the first time. I think you can make reasonable arguments for all three cases. And for that reason, I don't take a a hard position on who the second witness is.
1: But we'll know them when we see them. (laughs) We will,
0: yes, correct.
1: And and I guess just the other one, um, the false prophet. Is that person identifiable as the Antichrist King Charles is?
0: So let's talk about the name calculation, which we haven't done before I answer that question.
1: All right. Oh, yeah, yeah, we never even got to that.
0: We did not. So we talked about some of the imagery, which we haven't gone into in a huge amount of detail. But what we pointed out, coming back to this imagery, is that Charles has the imagery of the beast with feet like a bear, body like a leopard, mouth like a lion. He has the little horn of the eyes of a man of Daniel 7 in both chapters. You know, Between Revelation, let's say 11 to 13, three chapters of Revelation between those three chapters, uh, you know, with the first two, 11 and 12 being the context for 13, and then in Daniel chapter 7 in the Old Testament, and then again later actually in the New Testament as well between Revelation 17 and 18, We learn that this beast, this corporate beast rules for three and a half years throughout the period of the great tribulation, right? And so we've seen Charles is the little horn of the eyes of a man. He is the beast with feet like a bear, body body like a leopard, mouth like a lion. And I mentioned that the graven versions of his coats of arms, which were on the Eagle Gate over it and over the Queens Gate at his investiture in July, 1969, those look like huge cast iron versions of the devices on this thing that you're looking at on the screen. They were made of plaster and painted to look like cast iron, and they were large and put over those gates and around those gates for purposes of Charles' investiture. But there were two versions of this Dexter Beast, you know, besides the unicorn on those. And on both of them for the Dexter Beast, it actually had bear's claws. Actually had bear's feet and claws on those. And the claws are, you know, long and skinny, like you see on a bear on both of those versions. And I show those in the book in the second edition, I didn't have good versions of those to show good photo photographs to show for the first edition, but I, I do have them now. And they're in the second edition. So the point is they actually made it bears claws for whatever reason, at his investiture in the graven versions. And this version that you're seeing on the screen, the official version here, was first shown to the world at the same investor at the same time, and was on the brochures, the order of service that was handed to those who attended the investor, both in the castle and some outside of it, you know, standing around it. And it was also on plates and saucers, you know, cups and saucers plates sold at the investor's memorabilia, the original ones. So you can see Charles Heraldic achievement, his coat of arms on all those things. And then it was later published in a book called Boutelle's Heraldry, which was the only book in the world prior to mine, uh, to my knowledge, to actually have this heraldic achievement in it for Charles. You know, that's where I found it. So that being said, I found it originally while I was at the academy after I asked Lord to show me. That being said, he has the imagery. Now let's come back to the name calculation and then I'll get into your other question. Whoops, I, I clicked the wrong thing here um oh i'm clicking all the wrong things and i'll come back to this too because i want to show something on that let me go to the charts so this is the a page from the first edition of the antichrist a cup of tea and on it we see the greek system and the values assigned right here so this is the greek language right here the number 666 in the verse, excuse me, um, of Revelation chapter 13, so Revelation thirteen eighteen. 18. Um, this number 666 is specified not with words, but with three Greek letters. In the underlying Greek text. So, in the majority text as well as the received text or the textus receptus, there's a single letter for 600, a second letter for 60, and a third letter for 6. Yes. Okay. Any Greek manuscript that spells those numbers out in words as 666 is corrupt. And the Nestle Allen text, for example, spells it out. The majority text, the received text, do not. So for, and when I say corrupt, I'm speaking specifically of this verse, not the whole New Testament, okay? Just this verse. So in other words, the vast majority of existing Greek manuscripts don't spell it out, but have it as three Greek letters. And the system that's used in those three Greek letters is this one right here. So the first uh, character that's used for 600 uh, is... This one right here that I'm circling with my mouse, if you can see it. X, X. It looks like X, but it's yeah. this one right here, okay? The second letter that's used for 60 is this one right here. Okay. And the third letter that's used for six is this one over here. In the underlying Greek text. Well, as it turns out, the system was derived historically from the original system in Hebrew, the Hebrew language. So here's the Hebrew language in sequence. It is a sequential system, not a phonetic one. So aleph is 1, bet is 2, you know, gimel is 3, dalit is 4, etc. up to this Sadeh. okay? So it's 1 through 9, 10 through 90, 100 through 400 in sequence. The Hebrew language has only 22 characters or hieroglyphs not 26 or more. So it cut off at 400. In Hebrew, historically, originally, there were not separate words for numbers. Numbers were represented with the letters, like this. This is the original Hebrew numbering system. Okay? That system was taken by John, you know, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and the Greek version of it was used. The Greek version historically derived from the Hebrew, so the ancient Greeks took the Hebrew system, I guess, because they thought it was clever or whatever, and they transferred it to Greek sequentially, not phonetically, and they expanded it to include 500 through 900, which Hebrew did not have. The Greek version, which includes 600, is used to specify 666 in the, in the underlying Greek text of Revelation 13, 18. Okay? Again, the, the import, there are... Three important things I'll point out here. One is, as I noted, it's sequential, not phonetically, not phonetic, right? Second is, you cannot use Greek to do the calculation. That's surprising, isn't it? Yeah, you have to use the Hebrew. Well, you don't even have to use Hebrew. You have to use a language that's not Greek or Hebrew. Well, not I shouldn't say not Hebrew, it's not Greek. There are a few languages, very few, like Greek where the case of the characters you use, even if you've assigned the numbers sequentially, like what was done to Greek, where if you use mixed case, the values are different. So for example, in English, if you do prince, P-R-I-N-C-E, and you calculate the value, if you do capital P, lowercase r, or lowercase p, capital R, it doesn't make any difference. The value calculates the same, right? Right because a lowercase a has the same value as an uppercase a. In Hebrew, there aren't, there's no mixed case in Hebrew, so aleph is aleph, right? You have some final form versions of the letters, so this is still the same case as far as Hebrew is concerned for mem, but this is the final form of mem that would go at the end of a word rather than somewhere in the middle or beginning of a word. Hebrew does not have mixed case. So again, it doesn't matter, you know, there's no mixed case to mess up your calculation. Greek is different. In Greek, though the letters were assigned sequentially, they were assigned sequentially to just one case or the first set of characters of Greek. And in Greek, if you you mix up the case, for example, however it's spelled for the word prince, the calculation is completely different, unlike with English. Same thing with any other word, you know, that you would calculate against the Greek version of the system. So you can't get a consistent calculation in Greek because am I supposed to use a capital P and a lowercase p or all caps or all lowercase, right? Can I mix it up? How do I know? Where are the rules for that? There aren't any rules. So you can't use Greek for the calculation. There are other languages like Mandarin, for example, or some of the Asian languages You know, that they have vast numbers of characters, right? You know, that as they're used today, you couldn't transfer the the system sequentially to them to use it. Are you following all that?
1: You're starting to lose me a little bit here. I got to admit. Okay.
0: All right. Well, are you familiar with the Asian languages at all? No. Okay. If you were to look at Chinese, for example, Mandarin, which is the Chinese language, I think that maybe there are about 8,000 different hieroglyphs that comprise it? Yeah,
1: I think it was two or 3,000 is what I had heard, but I really don't know.
0: Yeah, it's a vast number. Japanese has quite a few. Other Asian languages have quite a few. The point is you kind of need to go with a language like English or Hebrew to do the calculation, but we have the historical precedent that it was transferred sequentially to Greek. Starting with that, the title, Charles, Prince of Wales, which is Nasiq charles of wales it's the exact same title as prince charles of wales just spelled and given as you would see it in the modern israeli press yeah so nasik is the hebrew word for a prince who's an heir apparent to a throne charles the transliteration in hebrew of the name charles because it's not an original hebrew name mem for of in hebrew and wales transliterated like charles there's not an original word for Wales in Hebrew either. So Nasik Charles of Wales, this is how it would be given in modern Israeli uh, Hebrew, works out to precisely 666, right here, on the original biblical numbering (laughs) system before it was transferred to any other language, okay? That same title, as we would transfer it to English, you know, using the precedent, the historical precedent of how it was transferred to Greek, but with one difference, And that is cutting off, you know, W, X, Y, and Z, not expanding the system, in other words, like what was done with Greek, because we cannot even use the Greek system for the calculation anyway. So going with just the original numbers from the Hebrew system, but transferred sequentially, using the precedence of what was done historically for Greek, the same title, Prince Charles of Wales, again, works out to exactly 666. But it's a completely different combination of numbers. With a completely different combination of characters, and here it is. Uh, well, wrong direction. Let me do that again here. There it is again. A different way of laying it out, but you can see Prince Charles of Wales versus Nasik Charles of Wales. You can see the different combinations, right, of letters and characters and values. Well, but both work out has exactly.
1: Stamp on it because that would be impossible. otherwise. words, like there's, you couldn't. <laughs> How many other comment, how many other words would come out the same using the same calculation?
0: Well, not just words, but real names and titles with yeah, no Yeah, Exactly. And in fact, I think a person would be very hard pressed to find any, even one, that works out to six six six. That has, you know, a name with a geographic location or, you know, a title like prince of, you know, a geographic location, that kind of thing. Kinda of like um Jesus of Nazareth, or Jesus the Nazarene, or Christ Jesus the Nazarene, or, you know, Saul of Tarsus, or Apostle Paul of Tarsus, that kind of thing, right? This is a biblical format, in other words, of a name. So even setting aside the biblical format to find a name that w- without any kind of tampering, you know, where the system is transferred sequentially,
1: yeah, and you're doing the, the full calculation.
0: I think you'll find it nearly impossible to come up with something any real name that's six 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 of an actual person, not something you've just gone and invented, because it sounds like, you know, yeah. it could have been a real name. Okay, that being said, there's a really important point to make here. Scripture says, "Who you know, let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast." Now we've looked at the imagery of the beast, right? And then it tells us, "For it is the number of a man." So the point is. If the imagery of that beast, what we saw on Charles' heraldic achievement, this beast right here, in this case, this thing with the red dragon, or in reality, this whole corporate beast, right? But if this thing with the red dragon is not present for the person in question, we cannot do the name calculation. It's unlawful, biblically, to do the name calculation, to put it another way. It's illegitimate, in other words. The authorization to do the name calculation in the first place is that this imagery of this first beast has to be present. Charles is the only human being in the history of the world to have it, including to this day. His sons do not have it. And again, folks, if you're tuning in now, anyone who tries to tell you that this thing here is a red dragon, does not know what they're talking about. This is the red lion of Scotland.
1: Yeah, you can see it's a lion when you zoom in like that.
0: Yeah, okay. It's officially the red lion of Scotland. The only red dragon is this one. And this thing is not on the coat of arms or heraldic achievement of William or Harry and never will be. And I pointed out earlier, Jeff, that there are laws that pertain to heraldry, you know, in an earlier segment, we'll say of our interview you know, where they can't just make it up as they go, they have to follow a very precise set of rules that are international rules. The College of Heraldry that produced this. Among those laws are that this is unique forever to the person to whom it's granted. No one else can ever have this same coat of arms in all eternity, according to the laws, okay? And the same thing is is true of Williams' coat of arms. No one else will ever have one precisely identical to it. You know, and every other person who's been given a royal coat of arms, you know, following the rules. So that being said, Charles has the imagery. That authorizes us to try to do the name calculation. Now, if he didn't have the imagery and the calculation, you know, miraculously uh, somehow, sorry, I keep doing this, somehow was there anyway, you know, as Charles Prince of Wales, it would prove nothing. Other than people banging their head against the wall and saying, How's that possible? Because statistically speaking, this is impossible in the whole time frame of the universe that you know macroevolutionists alert, uh, allege, you know, 14, 15 billion years. By random chance, mathematically, this can't ever happen in two languages. Like ever.
1: Yeah, that that's why time. I say it's God's stamp on it, right? Like, you know.
0: Yeah, but, and this is my point. If you combine this, where it's actually authorized to do the calculation with the imagery being present, uh, like it is, I keep doing that, you know, for Charles here, that's all you need to know. There's zero that anyone else needs to know to say categorically, emphatically, Authorized by God, Charles is the Antichrist, spoken of in the Apocalypse in Revelation 13. He is the one who will be over a global government. He is the one who will be possessed by the devil, etc., etc., etc. There's no arguing the point for anyone who actually believes the Bible. And I want to emphasize that, actually believes the Bible. Of course, the, they have to know the scripture too, right? But
1: You know what, Tim? Uh <laughs> We didn't scratch the surface with the amount of evidence that you have, though. Like, we didn't talk about the abomination of desolation, the temple, the statues, the UN. Uh, right. You know, there's so much stuff. So, Tim, uh, because we're over three hours now, and I only have a limited time to cut this up to be able to get some of it up, you've got to come back now, my friend. Like, Like, like let's <laughs> schedule it right away and uh okay. there's so much i yeah. want to i want to get out of you and i and i really thank you for your patience with me on uh on a couple of things because uh it, it wasn't just for me but you really take the time to explain your positions and and you're a great teacher i'm going to highly okay. recommend his books like i've already ordered folks uh you know, you could, you could watch tons of videos. You won't get everything that's in his books. When someone writes a book, they take the time. They're so much more articulate. And then there's the editing and they, they double check. And he yeah. gets to put in all the images. Go to prophecyhouse.com and order the second edition. Don't, don't even go with the first edition because then you're just going to have some of the same information twice. Just get the second edition. I hope you don't mind me saying that.
0: No, thank you. Let me just point out, you know, people get confused. They look for the first edition and they find it going for 400 to $2,000 roughly. And they say, Tim, how can you possibly sell your book for that? Right? Well, first of all, that edition is out of print. So if you find it, it's a collector's item. You won't be getting it from me or from the publisher. So what you'll be getting is the new edition, which has a whole lot more in it, including a lot of additional evidence, including the statue that I'll come back and talk about. That's in the second edition. So some things for us to talk about, Jeff, next time, the The idol to Charles, the abomination of desolation. It actually exists. It already exists. Given to him years after the first edition of my book was published. So he's just waiting to be put on the Temple Mount at this point. It already exists. His crowning, May 6th. Now, I don't know how soon we'll have this next interview. May or may not have happened by then. But what will will happen on that day, May 6th, is he'll be crowned King of Israel. Not just of the United Kingdom. He officially claims to sit upon David's throne to be a descendant of King David. That's a long-term claim of the British monarchy. Elizabeth II was officially crowned queen of thy people Israel, quote-unquote. Her official lineage published in London, which is available with the book from Prophecy House. You can get the lineage, folks, and actually see it with your eyes. The official lineage, which is documented in the book, explicitly claims that she, and now the British monarchy, sit upon David's throne and are the royal house of Israel. Charles is going to be anointed also on May 6th with oil produced in Jerusalem from olives grown on the Mount of Olives. Yeah. Prepared by the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Anglican Archbishop, the Greek Orthodox Archbishop there in Jerusalem, both of them, uh, etc. It just goes on and on. But, but the that's the one is, I
1: sent you. I I don't know if you already yeah. knew it, but uh, yeah, so he's a, he's, he's going to be in this tent in the vineyard, and apparent, like it's a ceremony to marry him to God. Is that when the possession takes place?
0: Well, you know, we'll see. I, I, I've been under the assumption it'll be when he recovers from the fatal wound, but, you know, there's no rule, per se, on that, other than just to say that Judas was possessed at the midpoint of the crucifixion week, and I presume Charles will be at the midpoint of the tribulation week, right before the great tribulation starts. Doesn't have to be that way, but we'll, well see. Well,
1: but that's the way I read it because that's when the mark of the beast comes out, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. in the and, latter half, and,
1: and then you know things go pretty fast. The you know those, the skies get dark, the moon goes red. You know, yeah, and when you, I see that happening. I'm just going to fast and pray. I'm, I'm telling you, fast and pray, fast and pray. <laughs>
0: well, well, look, they've got red heifers supposedly in Israel now. Very soon they they'll begin to reach two days, two years, and a day old each. As each of them reaches that age, they'll examine them again to see if there's any non red hair, to determine if there's a real red heifer in Israel again, you know, after all these centuries. So there's that. That's about to happen. Charles is going to be the first male monarch claiming to sit on David's throne for, gosh, how long? Uh, 19 plus centuries? Yeah. Right? The first one in the modern nation state of Israel's history. What happens next? They'll go into high gear in Israel to begin to prepare to build a new holy place, to restart the sacrifice, etc. That's all going to go into high gear. after
1: They just haven't put it together yet, but they've got all the artifacts, (sighs) everything.
0: They're waiting for the king. They're waiting for the red heifer. They're going to have both really soon. And that's my point. And he's the Antichrist.
1: You know what? I'm excited to see this happen, Tim, because I know if I see this happen, we're going to see our Lord, and and yep. you know maybe even from the flat. And let me let me. T- he's big. He's not a weeping guy on a cross, okay? Mm-hmm. He is. He's big, and it's going to be the best "I told you so" moment in the history of time.
0: It will, and of course, when we're resurrected and we see him right, and all the suffering is past. We, many of us, you know, will get to look back in retrospect and say all the things we observed firsthand of the fulfillment of prophecy. Yeah. So it'd be a big deal.
1: Tim, listen, God bless you. Thank you for being here with us. Uh, Go to prophecyhelp.com. Tim on YouTube is author Tim Cohen as well. And uh, in the meantime, remember love your God, love your family, love your neighbor as yourself. And make a difference in your community.
0: Amen. Right on, right on, right on.
1: Live right.
0: Live right.
1: In the real world. Right on radio.
0: Right on radio. That's great.